0: Shalom is, uh, I think it has a, a much deeper meaning. It's kind of peace on steroids, I think of it as it's, it's, it has to do with interconnectedness. It's not just how we feel. It's not just, well, I'm having a good day today, so I've got Shalom, but it's how we are interconnected with everybody around us. And that's, you know, our neighbors and whether our neighbor lives across the street or across the Pacific Ocean, they're our neighbor.
1: Welcome to Intersections, where we navigate the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. On each episode, we visit with notable individuals in various fields who are asking important questions and whose experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose.
0: the kingdom of heaven.
1: This is the beginning of one of the most famous discourses in the world, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in the New Testament. Some have referred to this sermon as an insightful talk by a Jewish rabbi, others that it is a revolutionary teaching about radical social change, still others that it speaks to a high, almost unattainable standard of virtue and conduct. But this teaching, covering three chapters in the book of Matthew, remains a core text for individuals who follow The Christian Religious Tradition. The Sermon on the Mount is seen as the most clear and concise explanation of what it means for people in the Christian tradition to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have with us a writer who has recently completed his latest book, exploring this ancient teaching and applying its message to some of the challenges of our time. Barney Wiggett is a former Christian pastor. He has a podcast and has written three books, including his 2016 memoir, The Other End of Dark, a memoir about divorce, cancer, and things God does anyway. He calls himself a vagabond preacher, mentor of young spiritual leaders, lover of the poor, and grandpa. His new book is called What on Earth? Some of the Social Implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Barney Wiggett, welcome to Intersections.
0: Thanks very much. I appreciate being here.
1: First, could you explain um, to our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, what is the Sermon on the Mount?
0: It's a compilation, Jesus decided apparently to compile his, uh, some of his most uh, uh, powerful and uh, livable uh, teachings into one in Matthew's gospel in the first, which is the first book of the New Testament, chapters five, six, and seven where he uh, describes the ethics of his kingdom that he calls the kingdom of God and often calls it the kingdom of heaven.
1: I see. And why did you feel a new, I know lots of books have been written for 2000 years about the Sermon on the Mount. Why did you feel a new book about the Sermon on the Mount is necessary?
0: Well, of course, many books have been written about the sermon. Uh, and I've read a number of them myself, and all, almost all of them are are fabulous. I I wrote this book uh, to kind of propose a uh, an intersection of faith, uh, specifically Christian faith, and social issues uh, re- rooted in the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> you know, they say uh, you know never talk about religion or politics. Uh, even worse. Please don't talk about them both at the same time. Um, But especially if you talk about them both uh, into one kind of seamless thing, um, which uh, people are calling Christian nationalism, which is not what I suppose what I propose in in this book. But I I felt as though uh, the uh, I, I call the book What on Earth considering the social implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, with it in mind that not to, uh, downplay the personal, uh, and private morality issues that are addressed in the sermon, but, but the, um, uh, how, how, uh, the sermon frames how we treat one another, how we do, uh, politics, socioeconomics, how we, uh, Relate to each other on this planet, uh, and how we can um, depict the message and person and work of Jesus Christ in the most uh, uh, in the in the best in the best way. Um, you know, I mentioned Christian nationalism. Uh, na- Christian nationalists believe that America is in the Bible, and that the U.S. Constitution is. Uh, you know, divinely inspired in the in the same way the Bible is, and that America has this unique relationship with God, uh, and, and has been chosen by Him to to uh, carry out this uh, special mission on Earth. Um, but I, you know, what I say is the Bible doesn't speak American. I mean, it, it doesn't even mention America, it, but it does speak to Americans. Uh, and every other language and nation and and tribe uh, in history. Uh, But Americans in themselves are not God's chosen people, and America is not the new Israel or the city on a hill. Uh, So I'm not proposing that. I'm not trying to conflate politics with religion as much as show how Jesus' message and mission informs us on how to um, move forward uh, uh, in our world today. You know, our, our, uh, uh, our most recent Donald Trump, our former uh, president, he said, you know, if, if we elect him, he said, Christians, Christianity will have power. Um, and that's, that's Christian nationalism in a, in a nutshell. I mean, it, it, it's advocating Christian power, Rather than Christ-like principle, but it, but of course it, it struck a deep chord among a lot of white evangelicals at the time and and still does, unfortunately, whose you know but whose decades-long hope was for Christians to be in power, and that's certainly not the message of Jesus, nor the message of this of this book that I've I've written. Mm.
1: So some of the issues going on today politically in our country is sort of what's prompted you to to relook at the sermon in a different way than you had in, in all your years pastoring?
0: You know, actually, that's true, Seth. I uh, taught through the Sermon on the Mount a number of times as a pastor, primarily with the uh, personal and private morality issues at stake. Um but yeah, maybe about a decade ago, and then it's in in particular, five, six, seven years ago, I began to see how faith does inform politics, but not in the way necessarily that, that it's being depicted today. Um, you know, even George Orwell, I mean, he contrasted patriotism with nationalism. And, and, and uh, he said it's, uh, nationalism, is, it, the issue is about power and nationalists want to acquire as much power and prestige as possible for their nation. And then he went on, Orwell went on to claim that while nationalism is aggressive, patriotism is more defensive isn't the best word, but responsive uh, because it's a it, it's a devotion to one's country, but has no wish to impose it on others. Um yeah, so for me, my faith informs my politics. When I say my faith, it doesn't mean that I have it all right. Uh, I've gone on about 50 years of identifying as a Christian now. And, but it doesn't mean that, you know, that my interpretation of every verse in the Bible is, is accurate. Um, but, but certainly, I don't want my politics informing my faith, which is, a, is when, when, when you do that, then you've got January 6th. You've got a a mob of people, you know, many of whom identified as Christian, not all, but many who did. You could see it from their signs and their testimonies. Uh, They violently stormed the Capitol in search of lawmakers and constructed a noose for the vice president. I mean, that's nationalism, co-opting faith, not based on faith. And uh, so, I mean, we're all going to have our opinions and preferences and. Uh, issues that we care about more than others and that's the nature of a pluralistic you know uh, democracy uh, freedom of thought and speech and expression but but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be what it is these days this vitriolic lack of civility and lack of respect i mean the parties i mean i'm this is a no-brainer but the parties are more divided more than ever in my lifetime and even to the point of violence and people talking about civil war is uh, the, and, and doing so uh, with, uh, you know, kind of sanctifying it with Bible verses sometimes in many cases. And, and that's uh, that's certainly not the spirit of, or message of
1: Jesus. You talked about this, the intersection of faith and politics in our time today. I'm curious when in the years that you were pastoring, um, the whole issue of how how did that mix together or not? Like things like Memorial Day, where the American flag, where, as you were a pastor, um, maybe not as, as polarized a time as we're certainly seeing now, but how did you as a pastor navigate those currents of faith and um, patriotism, I'd say, maybe not the word nationalism, um, particularly for like holidays and, and things like that where kind of American... Um, ideals and principles can sometimes be mixed with the Christian faith. Uh,
0: not very well. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that I did that very well as a pastor. Um, and uh, but I, I, as I recall, uh, my uh, uh, I, I would try to inform our uh, my brothers and sisters uh, about what patriotism was what it is and and I love America. I am absolutely uh I, I love our country. I I I don't I've never really used the word patriot for for me, maybe because of what it uh implies to so many other people, but but I'm a patriotic person. I I think we have the the best form of government, maybe not necessarily the best people in government in the world but the best form of government in the world uh, and uh, many people many countries look to us as an example of how to how to bring uh, every uh, how, how to bring everyone into the process although though we haven't done that uh, in a stellar way but i think as a pastor my my inclination was to say this is this is America, and thank God for it. Uh, but this is the faith that we uh, that we follow. This is the Jesus. This is our our hero, our leader, and let's see how he then informs us on how to how to be better people, uh, better partners in our homes. Uh, and better patriots, better uh, people that make the place that we came into, that we were born into, many of most of us, how to make it a better place. And to me, that's patriotism.
1: This idea of a kingdom that Jesus refers to a lot. Um, you have a chapter. Your chapter is called the upside down kingdom and the inside out kingdom. What do you mean by those terms?
0: Yeah, I mean <clears throat> upside down as we perceive it as broken, flawed humans, and the way that we have constructed our 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 lives in this world today. And as we look at this uh, this kingdom, this this principle this faith that Jesus died and rose again to provide us, it looks so, it's so counterintuitive. Uh, it's so uh, not uh, how we have kind of developed life around ourselves. You know, um, there, we, I read at the very beginning, the Beatitudes, I call them the, the blessed attitudes, uh, which are so opposite of what we're seeing in many expressions of even Christendom today. And uh, so why I call, I call them utterly upside down attitudes because of their uh, how, how counterintuitive they are, how, how unlike life that we manage, uh, how unlike they are, I mean, poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, persecuted. Um, These are not, this is not how we manage life generally as, uh, as humans on the earth, uh, because we, we kind of treat the, the life I think as a film that we have written, we produce, we direct, and we star in. And, uh, Anybody else around is, they have bit parts. They get to be extras in our story. And uh, that's not the way this kingdom works, this kingdom of, of God, this kingdom of heaven. And by the way, when we say kingdom of heaven, it's, it's not a kingdom that is locked up in heaven and you have to wait till heaven to get there and you get a key and you unlock it. But it's... The kingdom from heaven and how it informs and changes the way that we live. I mean, we're all familiar, most people are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And in it, he says, You know, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, And so these these Beatitudes, which are the, the kind of the outline or the, uh, the table of contents for the rest of the sermon, uh, you know, the, I, one of the ones that I think we, miss, uh, our understand, we misunderstand is this peacemaking thing, especially in the church. I think, you know, Mother Teresa, you know, was a great hero of the faith, And she said, if if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to each other. And uh, so I think the Sermon on the Mount and the teaching of Jesus is so uh, clear about how we affect each other. I mean, he said, love God. Jesus said this. uh, Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, might and strength and your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And so this peacemaking beatitude, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the word for peace is a familiar word that for most people is a shalom. We know it as a greeting, shalom. We say hello, we say goodbye, shalom. Uh, But shalom is, uh, I think it has a a much deeper meaning. It's kind of peace on steroids. I think of it as it has to do with interconnectedness. It's not just how we feel. It's not just, well, I'm having a good day today, so I've got Shalom, but it's how we are interconnected with, with everybody around us. And that's, you know, our neighbors and whether our neighbor lives across the street or across the Pacific ocean, uh, they're our neighbor. And, uh, uh, Tim Keller gives this great illustration of a tapestry uh, made out of, uh, out of threads, thousands and thousands and thousands of threads. But before it's created into a tapestry, if you just take all that thread and jumble it up and throw it on a table, what you've got is you don't have a, it's not interconnected. It's, it's not a tapestry. There's, there, there's not much beauty involved. It's, it's kind of a mess and a tangled mess. But eventually if, if the artist will then create a tapestry out of it by, by interconnection between people, those threads represent people. And so what one thread goes over and then it goes under and over and from the side. And eventually it creates something very beautiful. And that's Shalom as opposed to us just all battling each other all the time. And, and, uh, and and shalom makers, peacemakers, uh, I think Jesus, he didn't say it this way, but I think what his uh compilation of his teaching is is shalom makers are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the disadvantaged. So, so those that are you know are already kind of a part of this tapestry have the privilege, have the 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 capital, the capability, Uh, but then there's so many people on the margins of our society. Every society has this and, and uh, for the disadvantaged. And if shalom makers are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the disadvantaged. And so instead, instead of, you know fighting against the world we should fight for it but i don't mean fight like violently i mean work toward uh shalom instead of war and and so peacemakers they they wage they wage peace
1: why do you think when we look at the climate today in our country and and you'd prefer to January 6th but a lot of people who are maybe outside of the Christian tradition and they're reading about it, they, they, things on the news, they don't see what you're describing. Um, Christians on the forefront of threading together this beautiful tapestry of a country from diverse, diverse backgrounds, diverse belief systems. Why do you think we're in a time where you, as a, as a former pastor and you're trying to reinterpret or reunderstand understand on the Mount, we have um, people of faith of the Christian faith, not, at least in the media, the publicly um, involved in that kind of what we call, what you're calling peacemaking, shalom making in our country. Do you have any thoughts on why that doesn't seem to be as predominant as I think you sound like you would hope as a pastor and a writer? Well, I think we,
0: we, all humans are flawed. We're all busted up on the inside a bit. And so that's kind of a, a, Baseline, and in our flawedness, we do tend toward self-protection and self-centeredness. I mean, I'll say I am, I am bent toward uh, self, uh, my own self-worth, and my own, you know, my film that I star in. Um, and I think uh, we've we've become. Um, in the Christian Church, I think somehow we have become—we uh, we expect we we have an expectation of uh, progress, and when progress isn't being made in my life or in my group, uh, we uh, we got to blame somebody, and uh, it's usually the other political party or it's the the uh, or we have been, become so twisted that it's people of other ethnicities or other countries. And then when we, uh, in, well, of course the internet has made everything so accessible. And then when we, be, we have uh, leaders, whether it's government leaders or church leaders that espouse a kind of a, a, a vitriolic combative uh thing we i think what it, it 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 gave us permission uh i think people that had stored up like a volcano like molten lava on, beneath the surface and uh and then uh, people gave us and i i you know i i'm not blaming this on donald trump entirely uh but people like in in a with a sense like his have uh given us this permission to let that volcano erupt and become, and then uh, co-opt the faith into that so that we feel better about ourselves. You know, if we're talking about the uh, faith community, uh, we feel better about ourselves being like the guy that, whether it's Trump or somebody else that is uh, demeaning and, and, uh, and combative to everybody else for my own benefit. Um, I think I think the church has not been as faithful to Scripture as it must be to the to the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the Bible. Uh, because if we actually read, a lot of people say, "Well, I love the Sermon on the Mount." Oh my gosh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. People that haven't found Christ yet um, and uh, but I but I, I often suspect that maybe we haven't really actually read it with with personal application in mind in order to be able to love it and yet live in such a contrary way to the teaching of Jesus um, these are Seth these are strange stranger times than I expected um, and uh, and to Sit back and just watch it happen is just not my jam. I can't. I can't seem to do that. Uh, it would be more peaceful, I think, for for most of us to just you know pray and try to hold the faith like we should, you know. But but it's uh it's a, these are strange times.
1: Mm-hmm. You're listening to KSQD, the program is Intersections, and we're talking this evening with Barney Wiggett, who is a former Christian pastor and uh, a writer, and he's written a new book um, about called What on Earth? Some of the Social Implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Barney, can you talk a little bit about your own uh, journey, your own spiritual journey, how you personally come came to embrace the Christian tradition in your life?
0: Yeah, I didn't. I did not grow up in a a faith tradition. I did not grow up going to Sunday school um, and uh, was uh, when I was uh, and when I encountered Christians, I was uh, I had uh, the uh, uh, arguments that most people do. Well, what about, uh, you know, how old the earth is and what about suffering in the world and what about, you know, Christian hypocrites and such. And, um, you know, actually the first time anybody ever really shared about Jesus with me, I was sitting up in a tree with a friend smoking weed and this hippie Christian, this guy that had become a Christian, uh, on an acid trip, actually, in Hawaii, this was in 1970-ish, <clears throat> uh, stood at the bottom of the tree and shared his experience with with us. And I wasn't, uh, at that point, wasn't interested in it, just was interested in him going away. And, uh, but then another person and another person, and I began to see people whose lives were really quite radically different. And not just because well, they have a faith and they won't do this and they won't do that. And they don't do this and they don't do that. Or they were, you know, particularly, uh, sanctimonious or any of that. I've saw people whose lives were like this upside down thing that we're talking about. They, they lived in an upside down. When I viewed them originally, I just thought that's very strange, you know? And then I began to, somebody handed me a Bible and said, uh, yeah. Read the gospel of John. And uh, and so I went out to the place where uh, that I enjoyed this canyon above a canyon and and uh, read the whole gospel of John, the, the words of Jesus and the, the story of Jesus. And was so I felt as though he was he was beckoning me. He was he was inviting me into this. And I just figured, well, man, if this is true. I can't afford to pass it up. If it's not true, then who cares? It's just one of the many uh, traditions that, you know, religion is the opiate of the people. So they need more opium. <laughs> and so I, uh, but it, it felt, it felt true to me. There was something true about it to me. And uh, so I just said to God, I said, well, not that I had ever prayed before, really, actually, but if this is real feel free you know you I, i'm in if it's not and you there's nobody listening don't answer back and i'll be fine uh with just doing what i intend to do <laughs> but he but he did uh, he did answer back not not audibly but very clearly nevertheless and uh when i said yes to him boy that Changed everything. Changed everything.
1: Uh, what did What did change in your life?
0: My My goals, my aspirations, my attitude toward myself, toward people. Uh, I I began to see the uh, if this is the creator, and these uh, 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 these all the rest of the billions of people on the planet are his creation, and he tells me to love them. At first I thought, well, that's impossible, but then I began to feel, you know, it's, I can begin, I can begin to love people. I can begin to forgive people. I, 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 my, the things that I desired uh, began to change. My desires began to change. And it wasn't as though, in fact, the day that I decided to sign up for this kingdom, I told a friend of mine. I said, I'm not sure. I don't think anybody's going to tell me how to do this. I I felt as though God himself had desired, had had, uh, taken up residence inside me. And I said to my friend, because I felt it now, even though I didn't know it from the scriptures. But I said to my friend, I think he's going to show me how to do this. I think he's going to give me the power to do this. And uh, I stood up in front of the church that night, the pastor asked me to give my testimony. And I stood up in front of the church and I said, I don't really have that much to say, but it might in, end up being the most important thing I've ever said. Jesus Christ came into my life today. And so so that's what changed we- the this inside out and that's why i call it an inside out kingdom it's it's from the inside out it isn't imposed from without well you got to keep these rules you got to do these things it was like now i've begun to have a desire to to be a better human being whereas before it was just i just needed to be a better human being than everybody else
1: (laughs) as there as you and this was how many years ago
0: almost 50 this, uh, next month will be 50 years.
1: Hmm. So over your 50 years, um, have there been significant struggles in your journey of faith? Um, you, you know, you explained how you came to faith and embraced Jesus in your life, but what has that journey been like? Have there been points on that journey where you've doubted you've questioned you've really struggled?
0: Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Struggle is part of the, A, it's part of the human condition, but this kingdom, if somebody doesn't struggle because we're still, we're kind of, you know, two people <laughs> and there's this, this, uh, this not so friendly interaction between these two people inside me. Um, and then, of course, uh, doubts of, yes, I mean, because I can't see God, I can't see this kingdom I sometimes I can feel it. I can feel him. Uh, but yeah, doubts are part of faith. And then, of course, uh, uh, suffering and uh, uh, difficulties in life. Everybody has them. Everybody has uh, difficulties. Well, mine came. I mean, I've, I've had difficulties throughout my life, but my most difficult difficulties came uh, about 15 years ago when I experienced divorce all within, all within about two months. I experienced divorce from a marriage of 33 years. I broke my neck and then was uh, diagnosed with bone marrow cancer, which is what caused my neck to my, one of my vertebrae to uh, dissolve essentially. So I had to get that repaired with uh, plates and screws and stuff. And then I had to do a bone marrow transplant for the, for this cancer, um, multiple myeloma is what it's called. And so, yeah, that was, I mean, so for the, about a year or two in there were my most difficult, uh, days. And, uh, and there were times when I raged at God there, when I, when I you just said, you know, if you hate me, just kill me, you know? And, uh, but he just, he's secure. I, this is one, one of the things he's the creator. He's not offendable. You can't, you know, and he, he understands the human condition because he made humans, you know? And so he kind of sat kind of like a child beating on his, his dad's knee, you know, saying, you're not fair, you know, and, and the dad just knowing, well, he'll, uh, when he calms down, we'll talk, you know? And uh, so I had, when I calmed down, not just once, but, you know, many times throughout those, those months. Uh, but he, he, he found a way to, uh, engage my mind and my emotions and my, my spirit to, uh, to bring comfort to me. You know, one of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And, uh, somebody asked me during that time, uh, or, well, during that time, actually, do you still believe in God? Do you still believe in God or have you lost your faith? And I said, well, so I said, I I can't stop believing what I know to be true. You know, it's like not believing in the weather. I don't believe on, in the earth or the moon or whatever. But I said to him, I said, I, I, I question his judgment these days. Questioning his wisdom, you know, and I meant it. But but later I realized it was that I was struggling with my own connection to how God rules his world. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, I never stopped believing in him, uh, but I definitely struggled with and and told him so. uh, And because he's so secure and the Bible is full of prophets and poets that say, how long is this going to last, God? What are you doing, God? So I, I felt like I was in pretty good company, you know, with them.
1: <laughs> you mentioned that that doubt doubt is part of faith. Uh, they seem kind of opposite from each other. Explain that.
0: Yeah, somebody wrote a book called The Sin of Certainty. I, I, I'm not recommending the book per se, although the point is very well taken that, and i think we come across as christians oftentimes because we think we should uh, god requires it and people need me to come across i'm just p- absolutely positive of everything and nothing ever rocks me and i'm certain of how my how i process god and my interpretations of the bible and I think that's a big mistake. Well, it's a big mistake because it's not accurate, first of all. Uh, it's also not very appealing <laughs> uh, to people outside the faith. And uh, But doubt, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Doubt is, if we don't admit our doubts, because everybody's going to hate, you're going to have doubts, even great men and women, children of faith, um, we're going to have doubts not necessarily. I mean, all of, everybody's going to have different doubts, a different set of doubts, and this. Even this morning, I was struggling with, uh, you know, a relationship situation and and doubting my capability of rectifying it, and wondering if God was going to intervene or if I'm on my own, and and uh, so then that doubt then puts me in touch with God, or it, it can. <laughs> Put me in touch with God, so I went to God and said, "I'm struggling here. I'm struggling." And as I began to share my struggle with the best counselor in the world, a big piece started to roll into my mind about this and assurance that, "Yeah, I can help you with this. I, I can help you with that." And so, unless I ex- admitted that doubt, uh, then I I wouldn't be driven to God. So I think God is not. He's. He, I don't think He's offended by our doubts. And I think he doesn't necessarily take them all away because he knows that it's one mechanism through which we are willing to come to him again, humble ourselves again, and ask for his help.
1: you went through this challenging time you had you lost your marriage and you had some physical challenges um and recovery and then out of it you began to work with with people in in San Francisco in urban area could you talk about that experience and what you learned um through that
0: yeah you know i i grew up in in uh, as a white male socioeconomically uh uh upper middle class. Uh, so never was ever felt like I was on the margins of anything. I was kind of the, in our culture, uh, the, the easiest to get along uh, context. And um, so now I'm, you know, 15 years ago, I've, like you said, I divorced and broken neck and cancer and I didn't have any money. I didn't have any insurance. I lost my ministry, my job, my, uh, my house. And uh, so I'm thrust into being broken a and B in, I'm standing in lines in the County hospital uh, for help. Uh, And because I didn't know what I, I didn't know what to do. And so I have always you know since Jesus entered my life there was you know compassion increased in in me and so on but but nothing like this and so now I'm hanging out with people on the margins and I'm seeing with greater clarity what it's like to be one of the disadvantaged and I began to see and so as I read the bible and prayed I began to see how God leans toward the disadvantaged because the advantaged don't need as much help so uh you see poverty and uh, in the in the scriptures and you see sickness in the scriptures and how God relates to all those things and so in uh short order i began to uh, increase my i call it compassion 2.0 uh, where i felt like man i gotta this, these are my people. In fact, I was in a gathering of, of addicts and not because I was addicted to drugs or anything. I was going to be the speaker in this, in this, uh, team challenge meeting. And, uh, and these are people that just came off the street and, uh, many of them just indigent and addicted and forlorn and broken. And I felt like, man, these are my, these are my people. And so I moved to San Francisco to to spend time with uh, houseless people, addicted people, uh, mentally ill people uh, in both uh, the uh, Tenderloin of San Francisco and the Haight-Ashbury. And I uh, just volunteered with ministries that were in those two places and just began to make friends with People on the margins, and uh, changed my life, and mo- I, I, they changed my life as much as I had any capability of helping them change theirs. I, I, I learned as much from uh, the from people on the margins as maybe, and I learned more from them than they did from me. Yeah,
1: what were some of those things that uh, you learned uh, from those that you, you got to know?
0: well uh one of them is the uh you know the the uh, this upside down kingdom and this poverty of spirit so it, it, it all begins these the attitudes begin with blessed are the poor in spirit and i think what that means is people that realize how impoverished they are spiritually and uh so when you're Financially, economically poor, and physically poor, uh, it it makes that easier to understand. It makes it easier. And this this is why Jesus said, you know, um, that uh, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom as hard as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And he wasn't saying he doesn't love rich people, he wasn't saying it's impossible. In fact, the disciples said, What? It's impossible. And he said, no, all things are possible with God, but it's just, it's going to be harder because there's a self-sufficiency there. And uh, so uh, poverty tends to not, again, it, there's nothing spiritually advantageous in the sense of uh, that, oh, well, a poor person is automatically a kingdom person. I'm not saying that, but the, their proclivity toward looking for, Help, poverty of spirit uh, is is more they're they're, they're more likely. Um, I found too that you know this golden rule that's in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in many ways, especially uh, in some uh, places uh, where poverty is is so rampant, I found that uh, you know when Jesus said, "Do unto others as you would have others do unto you." Uh, he, uh, that, that is, uh, most faith traditions have a golden rule. Uh, but I think it sums up the plot of the Sermon on the Mount and the mission of Jesus. You know, when, when he'll bury, he said, uh, he rephrased it, do unto those downstream as you would have those upstream do unto you. And everybody's got people downstream from them. How, however downstream you are, there's always always going to be somebody farther down, less with less social, economic, and cultural capital. And, uh, and, and and the best way to treat such people is to kind of reverse your roles as though you were the one below them on the social register. You know, in other words, like if you are the poorest person in your neighborhood or the least educated, the most socially backward. Wouldn't you want to be treated with the respect that befits, you know, our shared humanity? And so if we have that in our minds, but more than in our minds, in our spirit, then we're capable of, uh, I think we're going to be more capable of living in, a, in such a way that uh, Jesus prescribes in his, in his sermon. You know, Martin Luther King said, you can't walk straight when you hate you can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. And so, um, and I think the the poor, not in every case, I'm not trying to make them, the, the poor out to be virtuous because of their poverty, but uh, the, we tend to other people in our world. And I think the poor are less apt to other people de- dehumanizing them and dividing people up and reducing people to categories, those Mexicans, those Muslims, those homeless people, those, those others, you know, and which is just a kind of, kind of convenient way of, you know, ignoring whole populations of people and avoiding actual engagement, you know, with people outside of your socioeconomic or ethnic identity. It's, hard to, it's harder to caricature or classify people when you look them in the eye and when you go, you know what, he or she, we're just the same. We're just the same. And uh, especially if you hear their voice and look them in the eye and shake their hand. Uh, so I think that has been um, one of my mantras in the last... Decade or so is to is to is to realize we all belong to this shared humanity. Um, somebody said that the opposite of othering is not saming; it's belonging. We're not the same because we're all different. We all look different, and we, you know, we have different proclivities. But but it's it's belonging and uh, realizing that we're that we're we're part of this this tapestry. And we, we want to in, in, involve ourselves in that in, in such a way that it makes just the best uh, society possible uh, before leaving here.
1: What's, uh, what's the most difficult text in the Sermon on the Mount for you personally?
0: <laughs> There's a lot of difficult texts, right? Because, I mean, Jesus wasn't trying to make everybody feel good in this sermon. I mean, he was... He was in our face. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, the whole turning the other cheek. I think the, uh, the complete, uh, not, you know, the kind of the non-defensive. I mean, it takes courage to, uh, to live in such a way that we are, are not defensive, and the way I, I'm not a violent person, physically violent, but boy, do I know how to use my, my mouth, uh, my words to hurt people. Uh, maybe that's the bane of being a preacher, you know, because they, you can, you, you're good with your mouth. Um, but I think in terms of application, the, the teaching in Matthew five of not. Uh, and, you know, and which goes along with the golden rule, you know, this whole golden rule thing, we probably called it golden because it's, it's, it costs us so much to act on it and to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, those, those teachings, because it's hard to interpret too. people, I think because of the interpretation difficulties, people then discount it. They go, well, what does that mean? I'm supposed to be a doormat. No, I don't think that's the case, but because because we have all kinds of excuses to kind of lawyer down the Bible and, and to make it less than it, you know, uh, really is. I don't think he's teaching us to be doormats, but I do think that he's teaching us how to value this shared humanity that we have with each other and, 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 and leave uh, the defense of our lives of our of our egos uh, in in his hands, rather than to stand up for myself to 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 vaunt myself to make myself look better than the other person so that I feel better about myself
1: mm-hmm. um, do you think people who are not Christians some some people might listen to this and I never really have read this around the Mount or have an understanding of what it is. Do you feel like there's? You know what? In the surrounding the magic, could be helpful to people from other religious traditions or no traditions at all.
0: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I well, first of all, I think it's important to uh, search out uh, the traditions of the faith, of faith, I should say. Uh, in order, if if one is concerned to find truth, um, I think it's important to search that out. Whether it's you know, Buddhism or 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 uh, Hinduism or uh, uh, agnosticism, atheism for that matter, atheism is kind of a faith, I think. Um, but I think it, so. I think Jesus. Deser- it, it It's a good idea along with that search, to search out what Jesus actually said. Uh, the, the, um, the, because the church, we're, because we're, we're still flawed human beings and we still uh, communicate the, our faith inadequately often and sometimes more than inadequate, but uh, disgustingly. The, I've heard some disgusting uh, depictions of Christianity in my lifetime. And so I, th- I think it's important to go to the source. And uh, this is uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount in, in, in the teachings of Jesus' his parables. You know, the gospels, these first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I started with John because somebody recommended it. But I think uh, I, go to the source. I recommend to people. Often I will give Bibles to people or Portions of Scripture to people so that they can they can examine it for themselves, and I think what they'll find in Jesus is something quite, someone quite, uh, and teachings quite different than they might have suspected because of the presentations, the inadequate presentations that they've that they've heard from from believers. Um. And, uh, so, yeah, so many people I've heard so many people say, you know, I I don't really have a beef with Jesus. It's the church that just really bugs me. And, and I, and I always just, rather than defend the church, I always say, I'm sorry, because that's my, that's my tribe. That's my group. And we have failed you, but, but, but read uh, the words of Jesus and, uh, and ask him like I did. I wasn't sure if I was talking to the ceiling or God, but give that a shot and see if he doesn't, if there isn't some affirmation, some confirmation in your soul that there's some truth here that you want to pursue.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Barney uh, Wiggins, for talking with us. Today on Intersections. Thank you very much for having me, Seth. Barney Wiggett is a retired Christian pastor and author who has pastored churches for over 30 years and recently completed his latest book called What on Earth? Some of the Social Implications of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can also listen to Faith Matters Radio Conversations, featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions approach a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro. And join us on our next episode, where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections.